Welcome to Skim This. Last week's shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, has reignited conversations about school safety around the country. We spoke to teachers about how they're doing. We are stressed, we're tired, and our jobs continue to change on the fly. Also on the show, we've got the week's biggest headlines, from another shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to the end of COVID lockdowns in Shanghai, and a sneak peek at the Queen's Big Rager this weekend. Plus, we've got a check-in on women's rights and autonomy in Afghanistan, almost one year since the Taliban took over the country. Any country can be in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not about other women over there that don't affect us. And to wrap things up, we'll tell you about one surprising group of workers who are making a lot more pocket change. Teen babysitters. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. Now back to the breaking news, a deadly shooting inside a medical building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's the context. Yesterday, a gunman opened fire in a medical building on a hospital campus in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The shooter killed four people and wounded several others before apparently taking his own life. This shooting is the 233rd mass shooting in the U.S. this year and comes on the heels of last week's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman killed 21 people before being shot dead by police. Less than two weeks before that, 10 people were killed in a shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. As the constant cycle of gun violence in the U.S. continues, this week, a bipartisan group of senators met to figure out where Democrats and Republicans could find some common ground on gun control. One thing they're talking about is red flag legislation, which would allow law enforcement to take away weapons from people who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. Negotiations are still in early stages, so it's TBD if both sides of the aisle will come to an agreement. Meanwhile, other countries also have gun reform on their minds. Just across the northern U.S. border, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced this week that his country is introducing a new law banning the sale, transfer, and import of handguns. It's some of the toughest gun control legislation Canada has seen in decades, and it's meant to curb an increase in gun violence in the country. When he announced the new bill, Trudeau pointed to the recent mass shootings in the U.S., saying, if we don't act now, we're going to end up like them. Okay, next headline. Team Biden made two big moves this week in the hopes of giving frustrated Americans some relief. First, they addressed the baby formula shortage. Quick reminder, parents have been scrambling to find formula since April. But starting next week, the U.S. will receive the equivalent of roughly 3.7 million bottles of infant formula, which United Airlines will fly in from London. Those cans are heading straight to Target shelves in the coming weeks, while another shipment from Australia is also in the works. 
And the second move by Team Biden? On Wednesday, the Department of Education canceled $5.8 billion in student loans, specifically for people who studied at the now-defunct Corinthian Colleges. In 2015, the for-profit college closed after it was accused of defrauding students. Now, over half a million borrowers will benefit from the DOE's largest student loan forgiveness ever. Talk about money moves. All right, next headline. Sounds like a celebration. Kind of. Yesterday, citizens of Shanghai popped bottles of champagne and cheered in the streets to celebrate the easing of COVID restrictions after the city's two-month lockdown. In April, China's largest city and financial hub became the center of the country's largest COVID outbreak since the beginning of the pandemic. People in Shanghai were subject to a mandatory eight-week quarantine and mass testing. Family members were separated, residents had a hard time accessing food and medicine, and the lockdown sparked violent protests. Now, as cases are on the decline, Shanghai's population of 25 million is saying see ya to their quarantine pod and hello to public life again. As part of the reopening, people are now allowed to use public transportation, shop in stores, and eat in restaurants again. But it's not exactly a free-for-all. Residents still need to provide negative COVID tests to participate. And considering China still has a zero-COVID policy, citizens might see another lockdown in their future. Okay, next headline. Sheryl Sandberg, the number two executive at Facebook's parent company Meta, announced today that she is stepping down this fall. Sheryl Sandberg has left the chat. Yesterday, Sandberg announced in a Facebook post that she's stepping down as the chief operating officer of the company after 14 years. Sandberg is most well-known for developing Facebook's moneymaker, a.k.a. its advertising business. Her work brought in over $100 billion in revenue for the company. You know those scarily accurate ads you get on Facebook? You can thank Sandberg for that. But, of course, she didn't escape the metaverse without her share of Facebook drama. During her career, she faced backlash for everything, from the Cambridge Analytica privacy scandal to misinformation in the 2016 election. And her departure comes as Meta rides the struggle bus. Its core advertising business hasn't been doing too well, and the market isn't exactly favoring tech stocks right now. While Sandberg will say goodbye to her COO title in the fall, she'll still be on the company's board of directors. As for her other plans, she says she plans to lean in to her personal philanthropy. Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg shared that Meta's chief growth officer will take her place, and that he's grateful for everything his right-hand woman has done for the company. And our final headline. Today, Queen Elizabeth II is going platinum. To celebrate her record-setting 70 years on the British royal throne, the Queen and her subjects are getting ready for a four-day rager for her Platinum Jubilee celebration. From thousands of street parties to projections of the Queen's portraits on Stonehenge, people across the pond are... Ready! Plus, some very special guests have RSVP'd in Her Majesty's honor. 
Alicia Keys, Elton John, Diana Ross, and Duran Duran are taking over Buckingham Palace this weekend to perform. But we can't ignore the royal family tea either. Which has people wondering, what royals will be in attendance? Well, new Southern California locals and non-working royals, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle, touched down in the UK earlier this week. And working royals like Prince Charles, Prince William, and Kate Middleton will also be in attendance. As for who got snubbed, the Queen's son Andrew, who lost his official His Royal Highness title after he was accused of sexual abuse, didn't get the invite to some of the major festivities. Stepping back, Brits are celebrating the Platinum Jubilee as the Queen herself seems to be more popular than ever. And after years of the pandemic, the fight over Brexit and more, the Brits are definitely ready to celebrate the GOAT. Cheers to 70 years, Queen Elizabeth. In more sober news out of Europe, the latest on the war in Ukraine, the European Union has announced an agreement to expand sanctions on Russia and ban more than two-thirds of Russian oil imports. After weeks of negotiating, the EU has finally put its foot down and banned most Russian oil imports. But when we looked at the fine print, we learned that not all oil is banned equally. We'll break down these latest sanctions and why they matter in 60 seconds. In this historic agreement, the EU's 27 member countries agreed to block most Russian oil imports by the end of 2022. It's the toughest sanctions package against Russia since the war started, and the goal is to hit the Kremlin where it hurts, its wallet. Because reminder, Russia makes most of its money from exporting oil and gas, and uses that money to fund its war effort. Now, according to European officials, around two-thirds of Russian oil exports to the continent will be banned ASAP. And within the next six months, that'll go up to 90%. But there's a catch. Not all oil imports will be banned from the EU. Oil that arrives by sea will be fully banned. Meanwhile, oil that comes through pipelines will be exempted. So countries that use those pipelines, like Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, will still have uninterrupted access to Russian oil. What's the reason for the loophole? Well, Hungary's prime minister kinda stirred the pot here and refused to sign off on a total ban, comparing it to dropping a nuclear bomb on the Hungarian economy. After a little public throwdown, he got his way and his exemption. Zooming out, this ban matters for a few reasons. First, this will likely impact how Russia finances its war effort in Ukraine, though some experts say Russia may temporarily benefit because oil prices are going to go up. Still, in the long term, this is a big move in deterring Putin from continuing the war in Ukraine. Second, people in Europe are about to see their gas costs go up a lot as most EU countries have to scramble to find new suppliers. And that could also have other major ripple effects on European economies. 
And third, after all the drama that surrounded this ban, some experts are questioning how strong the EU really is. This wasn't a W for European unity, considering Hungary's president didn't exactly do the neighborly thing. So the EU might be weaker than it appears. As for what to look out for next, EU leaders say they're working on closing that pipeline loophole. And activists have their eye on the next frontier, natural gas from Russia, which EU countries rely on even more than Russian oil. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. A little more than a week after the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, teachers and students around the country are having difficult conversations about safety at school. I had them start out by sharing some words that came to mind for them when they heard the news or even if they were just hearing about it in class. A lot of anger and frustration. That's Courtney Powers, a high school social studies and civics teacher in Connecticut. And she's one of those educators who's been trying to talk to her students about what happened in Uvalde. As someone who teaches social studies and about government and democracy, the fact that these atrocities continue to happen makes students feel like their voice is less heard, right? This idea that they don't expect things to change, but yet they are horrified at what continues to happen is really devastating. Students in class, when we were talking about it last week, were suggesting they have to go through metal detectors to come to school, continues to shock me because I believe a school should be a place that is welcoming. The idea of metal detectors and doors makes me incredibly sad that that reminds me more of a prison than at a place you go to grow. I think the sad part about this situation is unless there is major change on a national level, right, it's hard to solve these local problems. After school shootings in this country, there are typically two sets of political conversations that follow. One focuses on gun control and limiting access to the deadly assault weapons that cause this violence. But because gun control hasn't exactly been popular in Congress, there's usually another conversation focused on school safety. We're talking about things like metal detectors, single entry points, armed guards, armed teachers, things that might make you think of a military base, but are now an essential part of the American school experience. Uh, I highly recommend doing threat assessments on your school. You don't have single entrance. We have been asking for armed guards. If you're not running war games on your school to see if someone can break into it. There's no reason that every school can't have an armed guard. There's no reason right. why you can't have single points of entry. That's just a snapshot of what the conversation around school safety sounds like these days. And according to David Title, a former school superintendent in Connecticut, the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012 started that conversation. In most suburban towns, schools are pretty much seen as community resources, wide open places. They were open to the public. We wanted that kind of welcoming family atmosphere, particularly at the elementary schools. And all of a sudden, like overnight, we had to make some pretty dramatic changes 
We had to install buzzer systems. We had to fortify entrance points. We had to lock doors that had never been locked before. That really was jarring to people. Like, this is hitting home. From that point forward, what we did for school security changed the nature of schools. It changed the nature of the relationships that we could have with parents and guests as we restricted access. It was an experience I will never forget and never want to relive and never want anybody else to have to live it. After Sandy Hook, teachers saw a big change in their job description. From the point of view of the teachers, this was incredibly challenging because, let's face it, teachers don't go into education because it's going to be a thrilling, sort of adventurous experience. I mean, they're there to nurture kids. They're not there to be on the lookout for gunmen. This was a very big culture shift and mindset shift, and it was very uncomfortable and very distracting for people from what they thought the core purpose of their job was. We should point out, teachers are already exhausted. They've been on the front lines of the pandemic. They've historically been underpaid. And when you add the psychological and physical stress of potentially defending your classroom from violence, that exhaustion takes its toll. I think the teachers aren't okay. I think we are stressed. I think we're tired. And I think we want our kids to be successful. And I keep going back to that idea that the system wants to go back to pre-COVID. Everyone wants to go back, you know, to a world without Sandy Hook. Like these are situations that we can't go back to and our jobs continue to change on the fly. Besides the impact on teachers, experts have also suggested that all this increased security in schools has a negative psychological impact on students. Things like armed guards and metal detectors can make students feel more stressed on a daily basis, and it disproportionately impacts students of color, who are more likely to be affected by the presence of law enforcement. It's also important to note that increasing school security hasn't stopped some of the deadliest school shootings in the past few years. Uvalde, Parkland, and Oxford already had safety plans in place for mass shootings. And increased security and police presence didn't prevent those tragedies from occurring. Experts agree that gun control is the number one way to decrease mass shootings in this country. And debating metal detectors or arming teachers likely won't solve this bigger problem. But as we wait for Congress to tackle and potentially never agree on how to fix a broken system, school officials and teachers have to go back to class every day and find a way to keep their students safe. For title, the conversation about school safety needs to have a balance that takes into account the current reality and what actually creates a healthy school environment. Teachers and other school personnel, they have a role in keeping kids safe. They need to do the drills. They need to be on the lookout for things. They need to pay attention to the safety protocols. They need to look for the warning signs. But arming them with deadly force is much more likely, in my view, to result in bad outcomes than good outcomes. I think attending to the social emotional needs of students, of parents, and of the staff is absolutely critical. 
And the more resources that schools working in tandem with the community can do to attend to the social emotional well-being of students and the adults matters a lot. We need to keep the focus on educating kids, keeping them safe, attending to the students and the teachers' emotional and mental health, and at the same time, do what we can do and do it well with these protocols that our law enforcement professionals do know will reduce the risk. For Powers, as this debate around school safety continues, it's key that politicians and parents listen to the experiences of the people in the classroom. I guess what I would say for people is recognizing teachers as the professionals that we are and believing us when we're talking about issues that we are experts on and making sure that teachers have a seat in the table. When policymakers are making decisions that are going to impact people in the classroom, if you haven't been in the classroom since March of 2020, you have had a very different experience. And I think that sadly, the same thing goes when we're talking about since Sandy Hook, right? The experience of being a teacher is very different now. We need kids to feel safe and we need to listen to them in what they think will make them safe. As the Supreme Court appears ready to strike down all or part of Roe v. Wade, we got to thinking about women's rights and autonomy in other countries, particularly in Afghanistan. It's been almost one year since the U.S. completely withdrew from the country and the Taliban took back control. And over the past few months, women's lives in Afghanistan have changed completely because the Taliban has gone back on basically every promise it made to protect women and girls. Here to help us understand how women and girls in Afghanistan are doing is Dr. Lena Abirafi, an aid worker, academic, and activist focused on women's rights. I want to start by asking you to walk us through the moves the Taliban has made to constrain the lives of women in Afghanistan over the past year. Basically, how have their lives changed? They've changed dramatically. We're talking about drastic rollbacks in just about every aspect of their lives. Breaking of the promises that the Taliban made to the international community to respect and protect women's rights. Women are banned from most paid employment. Movement restricted schools, dismantled support systems, including for things that are critical and life-saving, like gender-based violence prevention and response, barriers to education. Women are required to cover up their faces in public. That's the latest ordinance. Women are told not to leave their homes altogether, if that's even possible. Domestic violence has increased. That's the latest report that I'm hearing because male family members are policing the behavior of women and girls in their households and on and on. I mean, I, I dare say it can't get any worse. How do these new rules that the Taliban has put into place around what women can and can't do, how do they compare to the last time the Taliban was in power? Is it basically exactly what we expected and exactly what they did? Or is there any difference here? 
It is as expected. It is exactly what they did. It is more dramatic because we're talking about a generation of young girls who did not experience life under the Taliban, who grew up in the last 20 years expecting that there would be freedom and rights and they would exercise their voice and be able to do anything and be anything. And these girls now have to understand this whole new regime that, unlike the older generation who lived through it, this for them is something very new. So they can't go out, can't go to school, can't ride their bicycles, can't exist in effect. And that for me is the most worrying thing. That's the biggest difference. It's the girls who were raised to believe that they could be free. At the same time, there's resistance, right? And there always has been, and there will continue to be. And I think this is the most important thing to point out that as we talk about all of these egregious violations of Afghan women's rights, Afghan women are not simply victims. You know, that would be doing them a great disservice because there's always been resistance. They've always been actively liberating themselves. Before the international community caught sight of Afghanistan 20 years ago, Afghan women's groups, feminist leaders, individuals were galvanizing and were making change and pushing for progress and succeeding very slowly. And now they are doing so again. So Afghan women will not be silenced. They never were silent. And that's the only uh, source of hope we've got right now. I was going to ask how women have been responding in the country. You know, what have you heard about? Well, we saw some pictures of women courageously taking to the streets. The new generation that I spoke of, of of girls uh, specifically who did not grow up under the Taliban, they do not want their rights to education, their ideas, uh, their opportunities to be stripped. They are fighting back. They are risking beatings or arrests to be able to march. And those might not be massive movements, but they are important. They are demanding change. And at very least, even though the Taliban has banned protests and has harassed and threatened and beaten and and detained and abducted and pepper sprayed women's rights protesters, they are still out there doing it. Women journalists who've been trained over the last two decades are still speaking out despite the great risks to their lives in doing so. So there is continued activism and action and anger, and rightly so. You mentioned that the international community had wanted certain promises from the Taliban many months ago. They've obviously violated all of the things that they said that they would do. What does that actually mean for the international community? And does the international community seem to care? What we're seeing is, to be honest, a half-hearted response from the international community. Energies are scattered. Commitments are feeble, too few, too far between, too slow in coming. There are a lot of distractions, uh, a lot of competing emergencies. Right now, arguably, all attention is paid to Ukraine and that crisis. So it seems, as the international community writ large, we're not able to focus on multiple crises at the same time. Maybe we're looking for short impact and quick fix stuff, but Afghanistan is not a quick fix. I think we owe it to Afghanistan to pay attention and to sustain that attention and support. There is and there was space to negotiate with the Taliban, but the leverage isn't being used in strategic and certainly not in feminist ways. So where is that that outcry? Where is that outrage? Where are donors holding the Taliban to their commitments of respecting women's rights? Clearly, rights are being stripped away, peeled back day after day, one after the other. What are we doing or saying? What about sanctions? What about pushing for human rights monitoring? What about funneling aid, greater aid to women-led organizations? Where is that? Is that happening? Are we making education, girls' education specifically, and women's rights overall a sticking point in negotiations? I don't hear that. I need to hear that more loudly. 
And it's not about me. It's about Afghan women who are out there fighting on the front lines, who are getting no support and no recognition in doing so. I can imagine that they feel deceived and abandoned as a result of that. Is there anything else you want our audience to keep in mind as they think about the future for women in Afghanistan? And I'm curious to know on a personal level how you're thinking about parallels between what you might see happen in the U.S. and what's happening in Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I keep saying any country can be in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not about other women over there that don't affect us. You know, we live in a bubble and we are deluded and convinced that this doesn't happen here or now. That is wrong. And all evidence points to the contrary. What we are seeing in the States is a major backlash against women's rights and fundamental freedoms. I mean, for me, I just feel like, unfortunately, I'll never be out of a job. And I'm just so incredibly angry. And for young women in the U.S. and around the world, pay attention and sustain that attention and do whatever you can to amplify the voices of the people who are on the ground doing the work. If you want to provide support, there are many ways to do it. I've worked in over 20 countries. I've been doing this for decades, more decades than I'd like to count or admit. And I'm still doing it. I, I really would like to not have a job anymore. I'd like to work myself out of a job. But at the rate we're going, there is constant pushback and we risk losing even more. And what do we say to the next generation? This is not the kind of world that they deserve or that we should have left for them. So there is a lot of work to do. And I think if people aren't paying attention, if people aren't angry, then they're asleep. Lena, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Of course, anytime. We're ending the show this week by telling you about the battle for the babysitters. There's a really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal today about rising rates for teen babysitters. After two years of staying home with their kids, parents are returning to office jobs and social lives, and they are competing for part-time babysitters. Okay, it's been a minute since we knocked on our neighbor's door and offered our babysitting services. So what's the going rate these days? Well, according to the journal, some teen babysitters are charging around $25 or $30 an hour for their services. That's apparently on par for the hourly rate for housekeeping services, and higher than the hourly rate for pet care. And considering that price per babysitting hour was less than $15 before the pandemic, that's a lot more pocket change for teens. It is crazy because childcare rates between now and last year have gone up by 11%. And we all know that we're in high inflation right now, but that far exceeds the inflation rate. Meet Lynn Perkins. She's the CEO and founder of Urban Sitter, a site that matches parents with care options for their kids. And she's been watching trends in the babysitting market and told us she's not surprised to see rates going up. Number one, during COVID, we saw that there were fewer care providers. So with less supply and heavy demand, the people who offer childcare and other types of care were able to increase their rates. We also saw that people who were previously teachers or nurses and potentially burned out by their careers went into childcare. And because they are so skilled and have credentials, they're able to charge more. So I think you have a combination of a smaller pool of providers and a more highly qualified pool of providers. So it doesn't surprise me that the teen babysitters are seeing these rates go up and they're also able to charge more for their time. 
According to Perkins, frustrated parents who are worried about people poaching their sitters have had to add extra benefits to try to sweeten the deal. We've seen parents throw in things like movie tickets or gift certificates to spas, things like that. Maybe not for a typical babysitting job, but if somebody's coming in to help for a week or longer, parents are really kind of going all out. I think they're recognizing that finding really good care is challenging. And so you want to be able to keep and retain people once you have found a good fit for your family. But maybe these rising rates aren't such a bad thing. Because Perkins told us the rates we're seeing now reflect all the work that babysitters actually do for families, which, P.S., is a lot more than sitting on the couch and watching TV. After all, they've got to deal with the kids. We've all seen Uptown Girls enough times to know that's not easy. When you work for me, you leave when I say you can leave. Young Dakota Fanning never gets old. But joking aside, I think that what we're seeing in the rates is a deserved bump. I'm glad that this unseen labor force is actually getting the attention it deserves. I think it feels really steep to people who are used to paying one rate to all of a sudden see the rates go up so drastically. But I do think there is a positive out of this, which is that if we can have very talented adults and very talented teenagers make good money at childcare and for adults make a living wage, I think that we'll see a higher quality care offering for families out there. Not to mention, this rise in demand can also help sitters push for better working conditions, like minimum working hours and transportation, not just movie tickets. But it's safe to say some parents are struggling with this price hike, considering the cost of childcare is already super expensive. Luckily, Perkins has got some advice if your neighborhood babysitters club has been upping their rates recently. I always recommend to families, if you have one or two children and your neighbor has a child around the same age or you have another family that you could split care with, splitting care is a great way to lower your personal hourly cost. And so if you can find a nanny or babysitter who's willing to work 10 hours a week for you and, and another family, you'll be able to pay less per child than you would if you had your own care provider. I also think if you can find somebody who's in your neighborhood, you have more flexibility. So somebody is going to be more willing to work for a lower rate if they have a shorter commute or if you can actually be flexible with their hours. Let's say that she has sports on Thursday and Friday afternoons and you're able to book her on Mondays and Tuesdays. She's probably willing to work for a slightly lower rate if you can work around her schedule. So if you have some flexibility in your family schedule, that can oftentimes translate to a better rate with a care provider. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Before we go, we want to tell you about the Skim's new loyalty program. It's totally free. And when you sign up, you can start earning points every time you read the Skim's daily newsletter and web stories, watch videos on our site, refer your friends, and more. And you can use those points to unlock rewards, like discounts on products from some of our favorite retailers, Skim Swag, first dibs on exclusive content, and access to sweepstakes. Head to theskim.com slash loyalty to learn more and join. And do it ASAP for a chance to get triple the sign-up points. We've got the details and a link in our show notes, so check it out. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sejean Coriellis. 
This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Ko Takasugi Chernovin. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.